you would have a wealth, I'm sure, of anecdotes and ideas about what what it means to be an artist in in the Australian entertainment industry and on a global scale. I'm sure. A certain experience from the '80s, especially, and uh, and then a kind of retreat from it. Mm. Because um, to become the kind of artist I am now, I've had to kind of like take go down a different road than the straight commercial road. Yeah, but I still got to keep my you know fingers in the on the pulse a bit so that I can make a living. But I'm really creating for the future now, as Beethoven once said. <laughs> <laughs> what What do you mean by creating for the future? Well, Beethoven at some point said that he can't create anything more for his own peer group because uh, he was, was becoming too much too specialized in it, and the direction he wanted to go in, he couldn't depend on a, the audience actually understanding it. Mm. Or understanding it enough so that he could live off of it, you know what I mean? So he's just decided, screw it, I'm just going to create for the future. He <laughs> believed that basically the people would understand him in the future. And, you know, if you look at Johann Sebastian Bach, I mean, he, that guy understood it on an unconscious level like nobody's business. I mean, he may, he had to do his weekly cantatas every week, right? Every Sunday he'd crank them out, you know? Mm. And that would be the equivalent of, you know, sing-alongs, pop music, he's... They bring out the hymn books, they sing there's hymn, and meanwhile underneath it's going all this craziness. But then he goes back and writes the B minor mass, the St. Matthew's Passion, and the Art of Fugue, and yeah, stuff that nobody will understand. The B minor mass was never heard in his lifetime, right? And discovered 100 years later and becomes the found, one of the foundations of Western music. So he could see the future. He knew that that was the future. He knew that he was creating for the future. But he also knew he had to bring in money to support his family. And a steady job every week, and he hated it sometimes, but he did it like clockwork. And yeah, that's the what we got to do. We got to partition, in some way, what we do for our own time to make a living, and what we do for ourselves ultimately, and then possibly future generations. Thank you. 
Welcome to the Chat Cave. That was Joe Dolce with Jack of Spades. And you guessed it, my guest this week on Coming Up Next is a man you've probably heard on your radios at some point in your life. He had a gigantic hit called Shut Up Your Face and has had an extraordinary and incredibly sustained career as a musician, a poet, an artist. You can find all of his work at www.joedolce.net. And stick around at the end of the interview for another acoustic number from Mr. Joe Dolce. And while I've got your friends, if you're loving these rambles, if you're loving what you hear, please head on over to iTunes, give us a five-star review, maybe say some nice words about it, share it on your social medias. You can find us on Twitter at Podcast. And you can find us on Facebook under Coming Up Next Podcast, which is also www.facebook.com slash podcast. But for now, my friends, I will leave you to my interview with the one and the only Mr. Joe Dolce. How have you managed to sustain that? Because you've had an incredibly long career and sustained a kind of status as uh, as a musician. How how have you managed to find that balance? It's odd because I was just uh, discovered the other day that the you know why I've been not taking that seriously as a musician during the shut up your face period it was because it didn't require any of my musical skills. Mm. to do that song and that's why it's so accessible to, to a lot of people why it's covered so much you know when i was in my 20s i was a Jimi hendrix specialist you know i could play Jimi hendrix jeff beck eric clapton note for note and wow. i was really good at it and all the violinists from the local symphonies would come down to watch me play guitar because i had such a powerful vibrato and they just would stand and watch this vibrato you know because i could really hold those notes mm. and i was also a master blues harp player from the time i was 19 i mean Really, I could do blues harp improvisational solos for like 20 minutes, and that's all just me and the drummer or something. And they, they wouldn't be, you know, they'd be cre- very creative using a lot of therapeutic voice sounds in there. And, and you know, then, you know, so that was my band, my youth. And then, you know, coming to Australia and having relationships fusing with different artistic women. I worked with dancers and writers. 
I started to understand theater and how to use theatrical things as well as music. And what Shut Up Your Face came out of was a kind of a theatrical musical fusion, you know. I could create a character uh, who was actually a lot more aggressive than my real shy personality mm. as an artist. And that pushed that person out there and, um, and do an entertaining song. But in this country, Shut Up Your Face had a social kind of edge to it that I couldn't foresee. Um, because uh, Italians and Greeks and pretty much ethnic people were kind of in the closet here when I came here in 1979. There was no, Al Grasby was it, right? And he wasn't even Italian. But in America, I'd left, you know, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, you, you name it. I mean, everywhere was it Italians and politicians. and So, you know, here, something that I thought was probably lightweight, like that's amore, turns into be a social statement, you know, mm. and that helped Helped it break through. And that had really nothing to do with music. You know, the music, the fact that it was an addictive melody was like just part of my genetic DNA. It was in there, right? But it wasn't part of the conscious thing. It was how to entertain an audience and get them to respond with a sing-along. So naturally, musicians who are spending all their lives playing guitar like I used to do can't relate to that because that's not what they do. And, you know... That's why I was rejected by everyone at first, including, uh, you know, Countdown rejected it, all the major television shows rejected it, all the major record companies rejected it. It was really a fly-by-the-seat-of-the-pants success that got a huge, humongous grassroots movement behind it mm. and forced it into the charts, you know, through brute force. Because if had it been up to the record companies and the media, that song would have never seen the light of day. Funny how uh, how things can be forced by popular opinion. <laughs> I know, and then then people go, "Oh, he sold out." <laughs> going, well, you got to sell something. <laughs> you know, hopefully, you would like to sell out. Everyone would like to sell out of their stock, right? So mm. it's can't be. It's a condescending term only for people who are in the upper. The Lord Byrons, you know, who ne who didn't ever take money for writing their poetry because they felt, you know, that that class of people didn't believe trade. Mm. You know what I mean? They were like in trade. No, we don't do trade. <laughs> Not like the rest of us. <laughs> yeah. We don't live in the same capitalist right. society. We hire, we get those people to work for us on our farm, but we don't actually do it ourselves. <laughs> we just manage money and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, so Shut Up Your Face was um, a song that was inspired by your culture and your background. And um, was there was there any kind of familial reference in there like um i was reading something on um on your wikipedia profile about the line some of the lines being directly influenced from your family well you know um jewish italian greeks we've all got the mama somewhere in there right? did you have a mama or a grandmother in mm -hmm. there yeah when they make fantastic thing right food yeah, yeah. <laughs> and family and food it's like it's all bonded right and emotional manipulation that's in there too <laughs> with the chicken soup and the meatballs you're getting emotional manipulation right so yeah. yeah that that was what i missed actually i was dying to get away from it when i left america didn't want to know about it because it was actually keeping me back holding me back from being able to think for myself and but then after eight years of being away from it all you kind of miss it you know and one one time i'd gone back to visit my grandparents and was eating you know we were eating down in the basement we always eat in the basement 
all these Italian things, beautiful things, and they all were talking in the broken English like I did, and saying, "I'm right here." And I was, I was, I had been away from it for so long that I just heard it like poetry, you know. <laughs> and I started making mental notes of some of these phrases, you know, "What's the matter, you? Yeah, <laughs> what's yeah, the yeah. matter for you?" and things like this. <laughs> and I didn't know what I was going to do with it, but I just thought, "This is great. I got to get these, well, you know, from the horse's mouth." Mm. And then on the train ride back to Berkeley, where I was going to catch the plane back to Australia, I just started writing the lyrics. And one day at a, um, the, it was called the Marijuana House, was the place in um, Fitzroy. I just got up on stage and just did it a cappella as a joke, you know. People sang along, it was all right. Nothing much happened to it. Uh, when I got divorced from my first wife, I was forced to go out and do solo work again, you know, by myself, because up to then I'd been working with her as the dance and music fusion group, which was very non-commercial. Mm. But when I started having to go out and back into pubs and just get up on stage, I, I shot up a face became quite different. It act, people loved to sing along and do haze on it, and I, I began to craft it into a um, song I could get a response from. And uh, it never had the real sing-along thing until one night by accident I was doing the midnight show at the Flying Trapeze, which was a complete drunken crowd. I just walk in the door at 12 o'clock and start playing, and they pass the hat. That, there was no money, right? But one night the crowd was so the crowd was so drunk they just kept going haze all through the song because it was only supposed to be in it once at the end of the first line. What's the matter, you hey? God and no respect. Da, da, da. There was no more haze. Right? Yeah, right. But they just going hey, and they kept going hey all night, right? I just said great, just keep them off my back, and I just let them do it. And then eventually I said, hey, that's a great idea. I think I'll leave that in. So the audience wrote, in fact, the sing along part mm. through a drunken accident. <laughs> the best kind of accidents. <laughs> yeah, true audience participation, I guess. Yeah, and so to answer your question, yeah, my grandmother and my and my grandmother on my. Um, my brother's wife's side, whose name was Rose, were key uh, inspirations for that. Because when I sang it, I almost felt like I was there. I was around the house and listening to them talk and sitting down eating all the hand homemade food they'd make. Mm. How, uh, how important do you think it is as an artist, a musician, a filmmaker, an actor, whatever, dancer, um, that you do draw on your own life experiences and personal experiences and your family and all the this wonderful kind of tapestry that you have in your life to create even you know um, even something that was unexpected like shut up your face how important do you think it is to to draw on that i i personally feel it's essential but it's not echoed in popular media much like so we just take David Bowie, for instance, or um, <clears throat> Nick Cave, let's just say people we sort of are familiar with, they never did real confessional work. Do you know what I mean? Like there's never anything in David Bowie's work where you hear about his mother or father or <laughs> kids or mm. what. Do you know what I mean? Or Angie or any of that. And if we want to find out about the real life of people, we got to go behind the art, right? The kind of art I'm in inspired by is the one where the personal, the confessional part is blended in with so telling in poetry especially the most powerful poetry usually is poetry that talks about your background you know and your family and i can read you a few examples if you'd like to hear something i'd love to like here's a very personal poem i just wrote this one up in the bush last year it was published a couple months ago about my relationship with my partner lynn so 
I mean, where in, in Bowie's or Crimson would you hear something about Angela? Mm. Yeah, or Imin. It's not there because they, they choose to stay into fragmented, uh, William Burroughs cut up kind of, you know, non-personal imagery, right? For And that's, that's, that's a good way to do it. But you've got to go to other kinds of art forms to get the information, unless you want to write it as a biography, which you can do that too. But this is called Cairo Aphrodisia, time up in the bush uh, with ticks. Cairo Aphrodisia. Last night, Lynn woke me from a deep sleep with a tick on her back. Holding the flashlight in my teeth, I began with a burnt match, but only burnt Lynn, causing her to curse. Then kerosene, which also did little. Finally, she yelled, just pull it off. So I grabbed it with my fingernails and yanked it out. I hope it didn't leave any pinches in there. Back in darkness, the caro made it hard to sleep. So we made love instead. I love the smell of caro in the midnight. It's beautiful. Thank you. Um, this one here, I'll just yeah, keep going with this personal stuff. This is about why I chose, I had a choice when I was young to take up the accordion uh, when I was about 10 or so. I think my dad, the accordion salesman, came to the house and my dad paid for an accordion <laughs> lesson. So I remember I had to rehearse and learn these, you know, three blind mice and these mm. dull songs. <laughs> and uh, this is a bit of why I had to give up the accordion lessons, right? Which I'm not still, the jury's out whether that was a good idea, but I think it was. <laughs> this is called Don Diego's Accordion. I quit childhood accordion lessons due to a time conflict with Zorro, my favorite black and white TV show of the 50s. Three slashes of the sword, whoosh, 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 like the sign of the cross, cut a Z into many young hearts. I hung up the rapier and bullwhip shortly after George W. Bush was run out of town on the back of El Toro, but occasionally donned the, bland, the black cape and mask to help local townspeople with corrupt politicians and greedy landowners and for infrequent shopping mall appearances. Zorro, Spanish for fox, pronounced Zorro, credited with inspiration by their respective creators for the Lone Ranger and Batman, whereas the accordion inspired the blind and the file. I think I made the right choice. Hmm. Do you still think you made the right choice? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> just, uh, just thinking about the the image and the idea of an accordion salesman, like a door-to-door -door salesman, and trying to place that in context of today's society. You just, you would never get something like that. Or, uh, yeah, I, I, I certainly couldn't imagine a, a, a person going door-to-door -door selling accordions and accordion lessons in, uh, in, in today's kind of quick fix, quick gratification, um, you know, clickbait internet that's right with the internet and selling online how did you um how did you begin your this kind of foray into music what was the because you grew, you grew up in ohio didn't you in america yeah up near cleveland yeah. and what was your what was the kind of trajectory for you was was music in your family or was it something that you were passionate about or something that was kind of put onto you i had two brief encounters Three actually, when I was growing up, none of them inspired me to actually pick up anything. But the first one was um, I went to see Jose Feliciano, the blind guitarist, once at a at a coffee house, and he came out and played "Flight of the Bumblebee," 
blind, he's blind, but he had a dog, seeing eye dog sitting on the ground next to him. And all of a sudden the sound went out and we looked down and the dog had chewed through his power cable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I never forgot that. That was really good. So just last week I played a, a combination of three Bach pieces that I fused together. Wow. Blindfold. I actually had someone come up on audience and blindfold because I, I'm getting good at sight of the guitar without seeing it. And I always remember old Dave Feliciano and doing it. Uh, it's kind of like chess players can play chess blind. Well, musicians can play without seeing too. If, after a while, they just know where everything is. Um, yeah, that was one. And then the second one was I. I never dated when I was in 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 the, those years in high, that we called high school up to grade twelve. I was just I you know, too insecure or whatever, but. Um, we had this big dance at the end of the year called the prom. And uh, I'd been hanging out over at the girls' college because uh, I spoke French really well and they got me to be in a French play over there. My French teacher recommended it. And while I was in this play, I met this, this beautiful girl who's two years older than me, an honor student in poetry and writing. And just as a joke, I said, would you go to the, my high school prom with me? Because I don't mm. have a date. And she said, sure, I'll go. So I took this, uh, this very sophisticated girl uh, to my dance and it was my first dance with a girl and my, really my first love affair in a way and I probably was technically jailbait but who was counting <laughs> back then especially boys <laughs> um, and I never forgot her and and she's the one that introduced me to she used to sing in French and play guitar and act and write poetry and that was a very strong influence later on I lost touch with her 30 years later I found out she had run off with Julio Cortazar the the guy who wrote Blow Up, hmm. and uh, married him, and they both, you know, they traveled around France in a minivan with two typewriters, staying at all the rest stops, trying to write these kind of modern avant-garde pieces, and they both died uh, of diseases, and they're both buried together, right? So this was my, my first date, really. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that, that was the um, childhood stuff, and then I remember the first time I saw the Beatles on television, I was even, I had my camera with me even then, I used to set it up in front of the I was a little brownie or something, but I used to set up in front of the television and take photographs. And kids in school told me that this group called the Beatles was going to be on, and we should watch them. And I never heard of them, but in those times, the, there were girl groups with those beehive hairdos. And I had an image of these three girls that had hairdos in the shape of black beetles, you know. Mm. And I was thinking, oh, I'm going to see these girls with three beetle haircuts like that. <laughs> and, I, and then it turns out they were guys, and they had mop tops. And I took photos of them. I don't know what happened to them, but I had great photos of, of that. And I loved that She Loves You was their first song. And I just, I really got hooked on that. And that was it. And then forgot about music and went to college. It was my first year at university. My roommate had an electric guitar and an amplifier in his room. And he used to let me plug it in and do all these reverb effects and, you know, and echo and everything. I used to sit there for hours and play around when he wasn't around. And I, got, I had an aptitude for learning the guitar. I learned it really quick. Within a year, I was actually better than he was, and I was actually good enough to actually play solos. He had a little band, so he said, why don't you come down and sit in and play some of the solos on these songs because, you know, we don't have a guitar. So I started doing that, and eventually I became the guitarist in the band. And that pretty much was the beginning of the music thing. I was a very quick learner. I could hear a record and figure it out in 20 minutes. I can still do that. Wow. That's with Mozart, I could pick up a string quartet and work it out. Each mm. of the parts with it, you know, from pretty close. You get pretty close, you know, and that's close enough. <laughs> yeah. That's that's remarkable. What, do you remember the first time that you uh, performed in front of people 
uh, it could just be an intimate thing with your family or something where you were able to kind of create that audience artist uh, relationship. Uh, obviously, it was probably on an unconscious level. Um, but do you remember the first time having that experience? It's hard because I was never a soloist as such, you know, until much, much later. I always was a part of a band, and uh, there was always usually a, a singer who was the lead singer, and older older kids who were the ones who were more like them. I was like them, you know, the guitarist, uh, <clears throat> Mick Ronson to David Bowie, you know, the one mm. in the back. <clears throat> but I always, you know, I was watching and learning how to write songs and watching how the singers sang, and I noticed they always were, they, they could dominate the center. I was always best on the side, except when I picked up the blues harp. I always was a dynamic blues player. I could go out in the audience with the blues harp and just, you know, just blow the place apart. And those are that was my skills as an instrumentalist. And when the band broke up back in, in the late early seventies, I went on the road by myself and started to learn that rapport. I don't think I ever really. I remember doing early the Troubadour here in Australia. There used to be a folk club called the Troubadour on Bowen Crescent, run by Andrew Patterson. He was the first one in Australia to actually believe in my music. And he'd give me a lot of work over there. And I remember getting, get, eventually I got good enough where I could get, you know, encores and standing ovations and just playing solo. Yeah, and uh, I think I evolved part of Shout Up Your Face from that, from that interaction, as well as the, the drunken night where we got the sing-along. <laughs> there is another really clear thing I remember you know, like when we're trying to get work, a lot of times we ring people up and waiting for them to ring back. Yeah. Well, there's a time there's there's a time when you actually create something where they ring you. Mm. You don't actually have to ring them. You actually have to be answering the phone all day. Right. <laughs> and that's a magic time for someone who's a creator because it doesn't happen that often. But when it happens, it's really different than you being the one. Being yeah, the, yeah. And that happened with me uh, a couple times. Uh, but the, the really clear thing was when I had really shut up your face uh, as a single, my self-image was, was still back in the, you know, being on the dole mentality. Really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I had to do this. I had to open for um, Del Shannon at this big beer barn once. And all I wanted was 10 minutes. Just go out and do 10 minutes, and then Del Shannon comes up and does his great hits. So by then, shut up your face had been out a while, but, you know, it was, it was out there. It wasn't really in my life. I just knew it was being played on. I got out to do my 10 minutes and when I started singing Shout Up Face, the entire audience sang along with me. Wow. They all knew it, right? And yeah, I, yeah. I knew something was different <laughs> at that point because <laughs> I had never experienced that before. It was actually quite startling. You know? I was about to say, what was that experience like? Well, I realized uh, my ex-wife's sister was, who, was Prue Acton, who was a very big fashion designer in Australia back in the 60s. And I remember her telling me one day, isn't it great to get inside people's heads, a lot of people's heads? And that's what it felt like. It felt like I didn't know what happened, but suddenly my song was in all these people's heads, you know. And before, you know, I just, as far as I was concerned, I was going home and doing whatever I did. But mm. the radio and the media was taking it out. It was long before viral, viral internet. This was just for radio airplay. People listened to the radio. And they... So then I knew that I was onto something with this particular one, and it was time to, you know, develop it as a business, so... That's what I did for the next few years. Mm. What was the process of um, of creating that song like? Because I, uh, from what I've read, it was a pretty grassroots kind of operation. Well, I got a, we got a small grant. Uh, it was actually a, a non-investment grant, so we didn't have to pay it back. 
to do whatever we wanted. And we chose, uh, we had, I had a one-man show that was a bit much more elaborate than that shot of his head's multi-characters, but that was one aspect of the show, this particular character. And as a test for this grant, they said, produce this song, we'll see what you can do with that. And if it works, we'll give you money, for it, which will be an investment. Mm. But the first part of the grant wasn't, so uh, it was an outright grant. So my friend Chris Levan, who's a filmmaker who, who made the film Oz, and he's made film clips for just about every major group in Australia back in the 70s. Um, he and I used to play music. He said, look, great, let's make a film clip, and you record it. And so I went and recorded for 500 bucks, and he, he made a film clip for about a thousand dollars and that was it you know and uh, it just started like that and and then I took it around everyone and everyone rejected it and I even did tricky things like I knew Molly Meldrum who was the host of Countdown had a brother named Rob Meldrum who was in theater and I'd met him in my theater circles and I, I thought oh we'll get Rob Meldrum to mime the accordion part on the video and then when Molly sees his brother in it, he'll... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it turned out they weren't really sort of speaking. Yeah. <laughs> so that Didn't actually work. worked against it. <laughs> but the funny thing is after the song became a hit, Molly himself asked if he could mime the accordion on it. Oh, wow. So, you know, I always wanted to get both of them up there together. I thought that would have been good. Mm. But, yeah, then, then that was the next stage is taking it around and all the record companies rejected it and then eventually a small record label through Mike Brady mainly, Mike Brady who who heard it in the studio and said, this is going to be amazing, you know, this is a great song. But he said, you don't need me, you just take it around yourself, you'll find it. But if you need my help, come back and I'll help you with it. So I took it to everyone and I, they all said no. I had meetings in Sydney with every major record company. No. Mm. They didn't understand it. I think the closest thing one of them said was, it, all, these kind of things are feast or famine, you know, feast or famine. We don't really do that kind of risk thing. We, <laughs> so then I found this small record company, Aster, and they were prepared to take a risk. Mike negotiated a deal, Mike Brady, got an, even got me an advance for it. And within a, about a month, it was already getting airplay. So that was a very smart move. Mike was also an incredible, generous guy, and he gave me a really good percentage, almost triple what I'd been offered from you know, the major labels. Wow. Because he'd been a musician before and himself with success in the charts and he knew, you know, to be he wanted to be fair to other artists. And I was I lucked out, really, by mm. finding him rather than going with the other labels. That's incredible because you do hear a lot of stories about people who make these amazing songs or films or television shows or even form bands and things and they just don't have the right representation or the right management and they end up with huge success on an artistic level but then the financial aspect of that is kind of stripped away from them because they weren't they didn't surround themselves by good people by by um people of integrity that's right or or they didn't they were so so preoccupied with their own self glory and being in the center and getting all those perks that come with being a star which mm. That they didn't think about that there's serious businessmen out there who are very clever, you know, and they their their eyes are on the dollar. They're not getting they're not on stage, they're not getting any of that. Their power is coming from being able to generate income and you can buy all the toys that go with that. And yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so, you know, this is why in my experience, whenever an artist actually starts becoming an entrepreneur, it's really it irritates people because they want to keep their artists most people are traditional, like they keep their artists separate and they like to do the business side 
with hard-nosed businessmen. They don't yeah, want to yeah. have to interfere with their fantasy of the artist who actually is a hard-nosed businessman. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had a lot of problems with people because I, I usually just would burst into an office and say, look, couldn't get permission for my partner Lynn to to get a green a v enough of a green card so she could perform with me in America. And you know, I was at MCA, which is the biggest one of the biggest record companies in LA. No one could do it. So I just went right into the guy's office. I said, Let me do it. Give me the phone number. Picked up the phone or dialed up the guy at customs and said, Listen, all the stuff's coming over, you know, it's ready and we've got it here. This show's on today. Just give us a temporary thing so she can perform. They said, Okay, we'll give you a temporary visa for three days. Hung up, and I did the job, and they all looked at me like, you know, who the hell is this guy? Who does he think he is? You know, and they hate that shit, you know. Yeah. But my goal was, you know, keep moving, don't stop, don't get held back by these, these roadblocks. You know? Don't give your power over. Yeah. So that. So yeah, that was. That's the sort of thing that you you come up with when you try to wear too many hats. Um, yeah, and a lot of a lot of the black artists, especially in the fifties, were really massively ripped off. And I realized that in a really clear example when I was doing Meet Him in Germany, which is a big German kind of version of Countdown, and a couple of the acts on were um, Police and Sting was backstage and we were chatting. You know, and, and then Chubby Checker, who was one of my heroes when I was a kid, because it was Twist. Now, Twist was one of the only dances I could do, you know. <laughs> it's a bit left-footed, but I could do the Twist. <clears throat> and I loved the, all the Chubby Checker stuff, you know. And there he was. He was in these really tight pants like James Brown, shark skin, silver pants, talking to some blonde girl, German girls, you know. And I just cautiously, I walked up to him and wanted to introduce myself. And he turns around and says, uh, Joe Dolce, I'm your biggest fan. <laughs> I tell you, you want to get wow. your head blown. That, that, that did it, you know. And I went, yeah. oh, my God. So so he and I sat down. We had lunch later. And, we, and I was asking him, I said, Chubby, can you give me some tips on the music industry? You've been through everything. And all he said was, get the money. Get the money, Joe. And I said, oh, yeah, I understand that. But what about... And he said, no, get the money. He'd repeat it over and over again. It was like a mantra. It was long before, you know, show me the money. This was yeah, this yeah. was his experience. And he was like, it just... All the pain and the way he'd been ripped off all came out in that one moment of intensity where he's trying to help me by telling me, you know, don't do what I did, you know. So I was lucky, I think, that I... I mean, there were, you know, the odd corrupt people all across the board, you know, a few people in organized crime, I think, ripped me off. But the thing is, they're all, they were all very subtle and clever about it, so mm. much did. smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs> you, had, you had many dealings with uh, organized crime folk? Not, not many, but a couple. I mean, uh, I knew that, um, that there were a thing, there's a thing in America called cutouts where they actually, they... Um, they take records and sell them, come almost like the black market. Right. And they don't declare royalties, and that was all being handled by. MCA was connected, I believe, as allegedly they were connected with the mob, which was my record company, America. Um, I remember once someone took Shadow Provision and used it for some pizza ad over there, and um, we tried to sue them, and every time we would get a, a witness they drop out, you know, and eventually, <laughs> and eventually we found out that, that this was a connected business and they were intimidating but they weren't doing it like we're going to put a horse's head in your bed it was more like if you want to continue to work with us or if you want us to send work your way don't do this deal don't mm. don't go on so people would drop out eventually we had to give up and just take a, a settlement but so no concrete shoes 
No, no, I didn't have anyone say. Oh well, I've you know I have had a few people say you should come with us because we're you know we've got friends in the family if you know what I mean the family. <laughs> but you know I was I went the opposite direction from all that. I was really not interested in being a criminal and a gangster. I wanted to be an artist, and you know people like Frank Sinatra were drawn to that, but I was drawn away from it. I always could see the difference between the fantasy and the reality. The fantasy was the Godfather and criminals that make you laugh you know like mm. watching underbelly and laughing every other time because they're so yeah, stupid yeah. <laughs> reality is these really ruthless misogynistic people who in arguing for their family and making a living actually are quite they'll keep you in a box and put you in one too so i wanted to be free and you know and be an artist so mm. it's they're not compatible lifestyles unfortunately mm. so have you? <laughs> Have I had dealings with the with oh, the There's lots of different crime? mobs around. We got we got the um, Italians and we got the Jewish mafia and there's the Abor even the Aboriginals have a mafia and the, the Bush mafia. My friend Nanya, who translated my song "Shut Up Your Face" into Aboriginal, he used to tell me there was this Bush mafia that got things done. Wow. No, I uh, I personally have <clears throat> not. I've I've had encounters at a at my local pub. With uh, with one gentleman who was slightly unhinged in a very uh, uh, extreme way, in the sense that he started off trying to strike up a conversation with my with a friend of mine and I, and would fluctuate between wanting threatening to rip our heads off, and then within about 10 minutes would be in a state of tears because we didn't we didn't kind of buy into his threats instead we kind of you know we've both done a lot of study on human behavior and this sort of stuff so in diffusing the situation we actually unlocked a kind of subconscious to what was happening and he just ended up crying but then he thought we were making fun of him so he'd go back to being mega aggressive uh <laughs> And it just kind of would flip like this all night, and it's like Joe Pesci. Yeah, yeah, that's what it felt like. It felt like we we're in a scene from Goodfellas. What's uh, so funny? You laughing at me? What? Am I funny? <laughs> <laughs> there's no right answer, right? No, there's, there's not. You, you kind of backed into a corner at that point. Uh, so you said that um, "Shut Up Your Face" has been translated. I'm sure it's been translated into a, a multitude of different languages, mm. um, but what's the what what's the right term for the Aboriginal language that it's? Well, they're dialects, is what they are, and there's um, hundreds of them. But this, I worked with an, an Aboriginal elder um, from West uh, a tribe in Western Australia, up near Broome, Injubunji was the name of their of their group, and this is an Injubunji dialect translation. Uh, let me tell you about Nanya first, and then I'll give you a verse of it. it yeah, sure. First time I saw Nanya, uh, he was in this serious play called The Black Rabbit, which was he played an elder and you know he had a spear and red, the red uh, loincloth and the hangings and all that. And I was introduced by the director, and I was very shy. I'd never been an Aboriginal person, so I, you know, I didn't know how to react. You know, I just knew that it was like you know the reverent first people type thing. So. I was very quiet, and I'm walking down the hallway, and they're not understanding. He's about six feet tall, and there's all these urban Aboriginal guys around him, all looking really tough. And he sees me coming, and all of a sudden, he starts picks his spear up and starts going, "What's the matter, you? Hey, God!" And <laughs> started singing "Jadafe" because he knew it. So we shook hands, and 
later we decided we had a lot in common. Uh, he said, come and see me busk. I'm a, I've got to uh, do the, the, the Camberwell market. So I went one day and sitting watching him busk, and he had this whole circle of tourists, a lot of Japanese tourists around playing the did you do and doing talking about you know his totems and all that and it was they were all very reverent just like I was and and then all of a sudden he, he says now I want to do a traditional song that's uh, from my people 40,000 years ago and he got out some some white paint he started putting handprints on his body you know these white handprints like you see you know and and then he gradually he lowers himself down on the ground and he's on two knees and he's doing handprints up his shoulders and eventually he starts doing his face and his head and he's almost practically covered in white you know around his face and then suddenly he just looks at the people and puts his hands on and goes, Mammy, Mammy, I walk a million miles for one of your smiles, my man. Busts out a bit of Al Jolson. <laughs> and the crowd, they don't know what to make of this. He's like, he's just created this rift in the, in the cultural seismological yeah. um, shift or something, you know. And I'm cracking up because I get it. I know exactly what he's doing. He's, he's playing off of their preconceptions, right? But no one under, believed that an Aboriginal person could do that or had that kind of intelligence. What year was this? This is ni- This was nineteen ninety around. Right. Wow. Yeah, it was really great. It was long before Bush mechanics and any of those sort of things. And so Nanya and I, we decided let's do a show. We did a two man show, which we put on at La Mama. It sold out the entire season. We played two buskers. You know, he was. He'd be sitting, I'd come out and I'd start selling fake Aboriginal artifacts, pieces of glass, and I'd say they were, you know, ancient and worse, you know. And Manya would start playing Did You Do and get closer and closer to me. And I'd try to move further down. It was like that thing. We were, and he'd say, well, you know, I'd say, I'd say, what do you, you know, I was here first. You need to go down there. And he'd go, my people are here for 40,000 years. And I went, no, no, no. The 40,000 year section is down there by the hot dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it'd be funny jokes like that, play on. And he, he he was brilliant, you know, yeah. And we said, Okay, let's let's do something with Shut Up Your Face. So he said, oh, I'll translate it into my into my native dialect. So he he worked out a translation and taught it to me and and then what would I would at the end of this show I would play Shut Up Your Face as the ultimate busking sound you could never be overcome by anything mm. to show that you know he'd lost and then he'd say wait a minute that tune sound familiar that reminds you of an old tribal song <laughs> and then he'd sing it in the native language, right? Which it would just blow everyone's mind. And then we'd join in. And, but anyway, it goes like this. I usually do it with click, click sticks, but I do it like Wandelada Ninguna, Midanaya Minuna, Midanaya Kurku, Midanaya Rigwanina, Midanaya Jaja, Waeji Walonomaya, Merda Wongono Ningona Guma. And then and then, <laughs> then they wouldn't sing along, and I go, see, they're not singing along, it's not working. He goes, he says, Okay, everyone, at the end of every line, I want you to do a big dingo howl. And so he'd do the line, and then everyone would do the howls, right? So he'd go, Wandalad, and he'd go, Oh, he's a nine, and oh, It was a fantastic version, right? It just wow. changed the whole nature of the song, made it culturally important. And it was also one of the only times, I think, that, that, that a major hit has been translated into an Aboriginal dialect, right? Mm. Um, and I'm proud of that. And I've gone, I've, I've sung that to an audiences who, Understood. I've sung it to audience who thought I was sending up Aboriginals by making up gibberish. I sang it once in South Australia where two Aboriginal people walked out because they complained that I hadn't got permission from the local elders to sing that language on their land wow. in their country. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a million different ways you can fall in the poo, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It basically, you know, 
I, don't, I, I felt uh, that we'd created a great thing and, you know, Nanya was amazing to be able to do that. Mm. Was that, I, I imagine having something that you've, uh, that you've created in that way then translated into something that's quite sacred in that kind of sense, particularly culturally in Australia and given that you are from another country as mm -hmm. well. That would be quite a kind of spiritual experience or a, um, a really kind of connecting experience. Oh, definitely. It, was, it still is, you know. And the thing is, I, I wouldn't, because there's a difference between secular and religious Aboriginal songs, some songs are private, they're all men's business or <clears throat> women's business or tribal business. Other songs are more narrative and they're public, right? Uh, we always felt that, that that was in the, you know, public narrative thing. It wasn't a sacred song. Uh, but, you know, there's territorial things. That's what I found out in South Australia. There's territorial things. And it's a sign of disrespect to come onto someone else's country and start doing songs from your country without meeting with the elders of that country first because right. it's an, almost an invasion culturally, right? Yeah, yeah. So I learned, we learned a lot about that. And um, I've always thought that the, that the indigenous version of Shalavis could be another massive hit especially if it was done like a um, treaty you know mm. with a bit of early driving me but done with you know <laughs> and the film clip the images you could make for that kind of interpretation uh would be awesome have you seen the uh the the, the one they did on um the minute work song down under with all yeah, the kids yeah, singing? yeah 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 it's got that kind of joy if you if you could put it in that situation with that kind of language thing and, you know, you throw the English in now and then so people could sing along. But basically the whole thing became a cultural cross. Yeah, but, you know, I, I think sometimes my entrepreneurial days are beyond me. <laughs> I'm more into creating now and less into developing. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm curious uh, about you. So you, you brought up in America um, with an Italian family and then you've come to Australia and we've, we've, I guess we've spoken a little bit about the importance of a kind of um, cultural influence in your artistry and that sort of thing. Um, and, and you've kind of segued into doing some amazing work cross-culture with, like you say, some Aboriginal people, as well as amazing people all around the world. Is there any kind of... Um, uh, I guess faith or um, or belief structure or um, spiritual kind of structure that you uh, that you kind of follow or that you have in your career that's kind of guided you through this really vast and multi-layered and multi-cultured um, career. That's a good question. I, I I've always been curious about spiritual religious things. There was a period where I read I've all you know I read the Quran really carefully and took notes and read even studied L. Ron Hubbard's work and read Dianetics and took notes on that and, and written essays about about Dianetics. And, you know, and people don't realize William William Burroughs was really interested in, he was a Scientologist for a brief time, and he believed that the, what what in Scientology people called uh, engrams or buried buried programming from your past he believed that you could if you could access that you could make poetry and writing out of it you know this mm -hmm. is why i use the cut up method to cut up a poem and then each of these fragments would trigger something from your unconscious right but they 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 really came to blows you know because uh, i wrote a whole essay about that i i've never really embraced um, a structural spiritual belief system even tibetanism or any of that um, buddhism i don't know i just i just feel 
uh, I'm, I'm running more on intuition about things like that. I, I think that that you can get an incredible spiritual center from from your work, um, from getting in touch with your unconscious and having respect for it and, and having reverence, what Schweitzer used to say, reverence for life. But more than that, actually going, seeing reverence for all life, not just human life. This The problem with religions is they tend to put a big barrier around human beings and the rest of life, you know? And mm. like they, this whole thing of that there's this hierarchy of consciousness where you, animals and are at the lowest form and human, you know, I've never subscribed to that. I've always believed that we're all at the exact same level, you know? And it's just that we just don't perceive it. We can't perceive the level they're at, but... Um, it's just supreme hubris to think that you know a religious system is going to give you advantage over other living creatures, whether they're humans or non-humans. Uh, so you know, I never that's that's the one thing that's put me off for most of those systems is they either they're misogynistic and they have some really weird thing going about women's relationship. Even even indigenous culture is strange that way. When I was working with Nanya, his his wife at the time had always had to work walk three paces behind him, you know. Mm. And Lynn and I, my partner Lynn, is a very strong feminist, and we did a show called Difficult Women for fifteen years, and we toured it all over the world. Fifty shows in Edinburgh and multiple tours of Canada, Okinawa, Estonia, New Zealand, about six times. Um, this show was a really strong women's consciousness show, and you know, it's really hard for me to get back into thinking of mafia consciousness and tribal consciousness where men and women are these very very regimented uh, roles so all religions as far as i can see do that um and that's one reason i'm not attracted to them um but at the core of every what i call the religious canon of every religion is uh, there's what i call the difference between the spirit and the letter of the law you know the spirit of the law is where they emanate from right where they're trying to explain something that's unexplainable. They're mm. trying to see something that's unseeable. They're trying to touch. It's like the hippopotamus trying to touch something on his back. You know, there's no way that he can get his his leg around to do that. It's impossible. But it's there's something there. He knows is there, and life is like that too. We're part of it, but we can't really get our <laughs> get around the <laughs> back and see what it looks like. So, yeah. religion generally is one way of trying to to give you a view of that. You know? And it, it can only be piecemeal, of course, because nobody understands it. No one will ever understand it. Science, uh, in some ways, is the same way. Um, I remember a great scientist once said, science is just the best guess, hmm. which is a great thing to remember with science because they, they all like to believe that they know what's going on, whether it's climate science or whether it's evolutionary science. Science is just the best guess. Mm. I heard a, a funny thing which uh, I'm not sure if I necessarily agree with or not, but that, um, you know, scientists uh, need to allow for just one one miracle still, which is the whole idea of the Big Bang Theory. Because, you know, even for that to have manifested would still be regarded as a miracle. It's a miracle to watch a baby being born. If you've ever seen a baby being born, uh, we I delivered both of my kids with home births and with a midwife, but I... I'm the one that caught the baby and mm. cut those. I mean, it is absolutely amazing miracle to watch that happen. Another human being comes out of a human being and starts off as this little thing and grows up into this person, right? I mean, that, yeah. 
you don't need more proof of miracles than that. Nobody can explain that, and nobody can actually reproduce that in any other way, other than the way it was intended to be reproduced. Uh, ultimately, it'll never have that feeling, you know, uh, of watching a body come out of another body, right? Yeah, and that's just the beginning. I mean, oh, the, just the trees, growing vegetables, growing plants is an amazing spiritual experience. These vine, we were just talking about this this vine that's coming through the wall, and we keep cutting, and we come back and look at it, and then somehow it's come back, and it's up wound around the. Yeah, it's a, it's like, you don't have to go to to religion to find spirituality. All you got to do is just look, and and be open to it. Um, but you know, I believe religion is historically important, and then also it gives you a. A foundation of what other people have done, just like we, we we need to go to Bach and Mozart and Beethoven for the great music of the world once been done. We don't need to say, well, we're going to become Beethovenists or Bachists. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like you don't make a you don't have to make a creed out of these guys. All you do is realize that they t they explored an area that hadn't been explored, and now we can use that for for our own. I mean, who knows? Steve Jobs may be recognized one day as a spiritual leader. You know, when you actually look at what he's actually done mm. and how he's connected humanity. <laughs> yeah. And we'll all pray in the house of yeah, Apple. It's right. 500 years from now, you'd look back at Steve Jobs as being this incredible guru. Who knows you know, what people are going to do in the future? But I, I can't imagine anyone doing more for connecting people than he has. I mean, if you think about the inventions he's come up with, <laughs> staggering, you know? Mm, talk about combining artistry and entrepreneur, entrepreneurialship. Yeah, it's jobs. <laughs> I keep calling them jobs. It's jobs. Mm. You know, we, we we talk quite a bit about connecting people and um, and being kind of free in your artistry. And I guess, you know, to kind of put an underscore about what you were saying just then, you know, a lot of people kind of think that we're, human beings having a spiritual experience whereas i choose to believe um, that we're spiritual beings having a human experience this is something i've been hearing quite a bit in the last sort of six or twelve months um what do you think the meaning of all of this is oh i agree with what you said and i i think um, a, a more creative way probably to look at what we've just said let's just let's just rephrase it because um, I remember Robert Johnson, um, he was a, a Jungian, I read a few of his books, and he said the hardest thing for people to do is maintain paradox in their mind, right? Paradox is where you hold two opposing thoughts together and give them equal weight without making either of them wrong. Paradox is the thing that in the center, if you can do that, what you create is an incredible growth in consciousness in the center of that, that actually opens up infinite possibilities for creating right so let's just go back to that phrase um human beings having a spiritual experience spiritual beings having a human experience let's put both of those in our mind hold them together as equal weight mm. and then in that center becomes where consciousness grows right because they're both true and they're both false in a sense you know they yeah yeah and uh we could also be spiritual beings having a animal experience mm. or a uh you know a uh something else you know i mean the human isn't necessary human is also composed of all the bits of the body which some are minerals and liquids and water and you know what i mean it's like we could be 
spiritual beings having a water experience. So you start suddenly seeing that gap between those two, the paradoxes, we create an opening for all the possibilities. Mm. If we make one right and the other wrong, we basically stop questioning. And that stopping the questioning is is the end of the growth in that area, which maintaining a paradox is one a very painful experience sometimes because you know we, we're confronted all the time with wanting to, to see other people's enemies or black and white situations or law right and wrong or I suppose what I'm understanding from what you're saying is that um, you know the a lot a lot of them uh, why we're here is about expanding this consciousness and trying to remove a lot of our own preconceived ideas and judgments to kind of exist in a world where these paradoxes can exist, where one person can believe one thing and one person can believe something else, and uh, both are kind of given the liberty to express themselves. You are right. What you said there was actually spot on. That's probably, if there was a definition of what my spirituality would be, it's trying not to make things wrong. Uh, even though you have to resist them mm. uh, if they're a threat to you. But you, to try to, under, like Martin Luther King said, you you have to love your enemy, but you don't have to like them. You can't like somebody who wants to destroy you, but you love them because they're the same spirit. We're all from the same spirit, as he put it, from God, and we're all created in God's image. And in every person, there's that little child you know, who was innocent and so forth. That's the part you love. The part you don't like is their behavior, and that's the part you fight against and resist. And so, yeah, that's that's a paradox too. To love and lo- and love and hate the same person mm. is a, a great spiritual teacher who I've read a lot of um, and listened to a lot of. His name's Ramdas. I'm not oh. sure if you're familiar with yeah, him or yeah. not. I used to listen to him a lot when I was a kid. Yeah, and his um, his guru Nim Karoli Baba. Uh, there's a very famous story of Maharaji saying to Ramdas, Ramdas, um, always tell the truth and love everyone. And Ramdas was perplexed by this because he didn't love everyone, but he had to tell the truth. <laughs> and yeah, right. what 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 the core of that is is exactly what you're saying. It's that at the essence in this um, in this story, everyone is a manifestation of the divine in inverted commas of this kind of energy or this love or this um, consciousness. And it's the ego and the personality that's put on top that, you know, uh, is where is, is what you end up coming up against or fighting against. It's not that kind of essence. Yeah, and it, even those words ego, you know, I mean, those are invented by... By psychologist, psychiatrist, you know, psychologist. Mm. What the essence? What is it there? You know, that makes one artist unique from another artist. That can make their artwork so attractive, and actually, you can actually dislike them as people. But there's something about something, you know, escaped from that. Let's call it the web of ego, and and went into that work of art, which is transcends that person, you know, and goes on forever, you know. Mm. Uh, I think maybe a lot of artists choose to keep their personal life out of their work for that reason. They, they, they're afraid of what, you know. But, you know, I think we've seen that great, there can be great confessional work in art. And um, Sylvia Plath was a great example of someone who did it. And 
Frida Kahlo as a painter did it. Joni Mitchell did it as a songwriter. Having traveled the world with uh, with your music and um, and various shows and things, you've probably, or you would have seen, and we've even discussed, some of the greatest artists that we've seen in the last uh, few decades or half century performing and, and doing their craft. Is there any kind of thread that you've noticed that sort of uh, that, that binds them and that um, has given them access to that kind of success you're talking about success connecting with an audience in their lifetime maybe mm. rather than not because there's different types of artists that don't connect with an audience at all in life um, I wrote a verse in a song called popular doesn't mean good in fact the opposite is often true sometimes the most beautiful dreamers are only seen by the very few mm. and you know you get people like Van Gogh and you know to some extent Bach you know and then you get people like Picasso and Handel, you know, the opposite, complete opposite extremes. One's the, the other one side is wealthy and incredibly acknowledged and recognized. The other side is almost ignored, tortured, very, yeah, tortured or the paradox, only appreciated in a small way in their town. But they're still the, what's going into the work is they're all equal in that kind of cosmic scale mm. of changing, you know, reality for everyone else. Um, I don't know if there is anything that you could put your finger on. Maybe maybe this is exactly like trying to talk about what God is, you know? Mm. I think we can't know what if what anything we create or anything we do will be recognized in in the future. We we know if if you know, if we're doing well trade with people and they're paying for it, whether it's valuable. I did a I did an interview for Give It Mouth, um, a blog the other day where I said, you got you got your baker who can make the nine-foot-tall pastry model of the opera house uh, as a, to celebrate Prince, the Prince of Wales coming and visit. And then you got your baker who makes a loaf of bread that everyone in town has to have weekly for years because it's so good. <laughs> mm. There's two different kinds of bakers and that, that same baker could do both, but they can be quite separate people. You, the little bakery that you go to could be never get any public acclaim, right? But everyone spends their money on it. And the other guy's getting a big commission, right? Yeah. To design this thing. He's using all his pastry skills, but he wouldn't know how to do that. Mm. So this is the thing. You've got these big, uh, what I call the big stadium acts, and how everything is designed for masses, right? And then you got quiet little things that basically could be like Bach or Van Gogh that could actually go through the fabric of society and change everything, but can't get through the trenches at the moment for some reason. Mm. Uh, when I was, you know, learning music in the early '70s, folk music was on the top of the charts. I mean, that's unheard of now. Peter, Paul, and Mary getting number one hits. I mean, they were folk groups. <laughs> mm. uh, they wouldn't have a chance now, folk group, of getting the number one hit. So maybe the whole thing will go around one day and people will get so burnt out by this hyper, hyper performance-oriented thing that they'll want to go back to quietness and, uh, and just listening to an acoustic guitar. <laughs> I mean, I hear a lot of it in soundtracks. You always hear the breathy young girl singing over a guitar you know, it's all emotive you can't really tell what she's singing but it's just so mm. emotive you know it's soundtrack music really and not really you know doesn't have the sharp intellectual bite that the folk music of the 70s had where ideas were important 
Mm. It's more like feelings are important. And, and I think people, are, their brains are going to drive if they don't get some thinking back in there. Yeah, if they don't get some thinking back in their, in their, um, in their music. About too much head in bed. And they say that's not good either. So, mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, it must be pretty awesome to uh, have written a song um, that has transcended multiple generations and has even been uh, a spoken word thing by Samuel L. Jackson. Um, and I'd love to share a, a very small uh, story of my relationship to Shut Up Your Face. I um. I used to do karaoke every week at a, a pub in um, in Camberwell called the Palace Hotel, and um, it was a competition. And I actually did "Shut Up Your Face" uh, with the uh, with the audience. It was quite a large um, audience there, and I actually won that week's competition, and then went to a state final of this karaoke competition doing "Shut Up Your Face." That's great. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, th- that song has a very special place for me as well, and I'm sure people the world over it's 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 the most successful Australian produced song of all time, isn't it? Yeah, still, um, and it was on vinyl too, where people actually had to go out and buy a physical record. Nowadays, you can download things, so yeah, it's almost like you know the dollar is worth a lot less than it was. <laughs> mm. um, it's a lot takes a lot more commitment to go and actually to a record show and buy a record right mm. <laughs> um yeah i mean not, none of that i suppose really matters much anymore it's 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 just uh percy granger who's my favorite australian composer once said um, anyone can write an oratorio but i want to write one of the world's songs because he was so inspired by english folk song and all that he wanted to create something that would go on you know Mm. Uh, that the average person, you know, could could understand the one of the world songs. You know? That's what mm. "Shut Up Your Face" is one of the world songs. Um, yeah, it's it's way, you know thirty five years old now, so it's it was done by a younger man. But uh, later, you know, I'll show you music that 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 sort of came before it, and music that's coming after it, and. You know, who knows uh, if any of these types of things will have long longevity. Um, right now, they seem to be a little bit on the fringe of the, of, the, of the mainstream. But, you know, the mainstream, I've watched the mainstream over 50 years change so much. Mm. I have no idea where it's going from here. You know, who would have thought that all those old black blues like Muddy Waters and Robert Johnson would all become in vogue with that young generation of people like Eric Clapton and who all started talking about him right mm. and uh they were old people by the time uh they suddenly became in vogue you know i mean you never know when people get fed up the main thing is to keep your eyes focused and, and and create something you know i like how coppola once said you know he said one day you know some little some little fat girl in ohio is going to make a film on her home Super 8 that's going to actually change the world. <laughs> so, <laughs> he really believed that the big blockbuster thing was one way to do it, but that also there was another way to do it. And he just, he was giving hope to all, you know, all these, all these young filmmakers who are out there trying to, you know, break through with, with what they've got. Mm. 
Oh, one of the things I grew up with was the obsession with expensive instruments, you know. We always, we never had any money to buy instruments. We always used whatever we could afford. And when we'd go and see all these bands who had money and they'd always have the best amplifiers and the best guitars and we'd watch them on stage and go, God, I wish I had that guitar. I wish mm. I had that amp. But then I, you know, now that I'm older, I think back, the greatest blues music was always played by black people on the cheapest instruments, you know. Robert Johnson couldn't afford a good guitar. None of them had any money. They were all practically slaves. Mm. They found whatever they could find, and they made music out of it, and they made great music that changed the world, you know. And so this is what it's like, with, I suppose, with film and with... You got your, I mean, the big blockbusters starting to get so discredited now. Have you noticed in the trend? You know, yeah. It's just like people are so suspicious of the new Star Wars and things like that. They're going, nah. Even, the, even you know, you're getting people like Lucas saying, mm. Mm. Uh, they didn't want my advice. And <laughs> it's like, <laughs> yeah. Mm. And it's small, my favorite film genre at the moment is stuff coming from Scandinavia. I just love those swedish and danish thrillers you know the crime thrillers they're all remaking for the american market but the original ones are so much better you know they got better yeah, characters yeah. better you know dynamic. more depth ah oh, they're so rewarding you know mm. that's a really i think that's a really profound uh message or lesson is to you know just to be really true to your artistry and to not worry about the polish and the glitz and the glamour it's really about being true to what you want to express and how you want to express it. So you could have the most expensive guitar or you could have the most inexpensive guitar, but at the end of the day, it's about the person that's creating with that guitar, whichever that may be. Yeah, and what they're doing with the instrument, with their instrument, you know, the same person can pick up the same movie camera mm. and make two completely different things. One could be a masterpiece, others can be a piece of rubbish. The tool is exactly the same, right? Mm. Well, thank you so much, Joe. I really, really appreciate your time and 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 just your your wealth of knowledge. I feel like we could probably sit here and talk about this for hours and hours. Um, we could. And I would love to have you uh, play a song for us as well. Um, but there is one question that I like to ask everyone to finish out and round out these chats. And that question is, what makes you silly? Silly... Um... I think seeing the inherent humor in situations that most people take too seriously. Uh, and I, that has to do with self-image, right? So they say the best comedians are the ones that get up on stage and actually make fun of themselves. Mm. You know, like Woody Allen makes himself to be this, this kind of pots, you know? <laughs> and uh, not being afraid of having people laugh at you because you really they want to laugh with you right mm. but if you're afraid that they're laughing at you, you and your self-image is such you'll be afraid to do anything silly or to do anything that you know that makes a fool of yourself <laughs> Lynn once told me the reason she liked me she because I, she'd never met anyone who was so prepared to make a fool of themselves <laughs> and I was going I never thought of myself that way I thought of myself as a sex god but you know okay maybe maybe the paradox is they're both equal weight yeah person with the with who can who can see the silliness and um ostentatious taught me one thing you know and and another one who was like that was um kevin bloody wilson mm. these guys will see the humor in something that's so close to a tragedy you know like ostentatious can make humorous remarks about the holocaust right mm. and he can only do it because he's a jew right and he understands the holocaust and he's really he's really pro-israel and you know in a way he has the authority 
And it's the same with Italians have the right to make fun of themselves. Like people saying, you're making fun of Italians. I says, no, I'm an Italian. I'm making fun yeah, of myself. Yeah. You know, uh, seeing the humor in your own situation and, and remembering all those funny things you, you grew up with that were funny. And one of my main criticisms of people that write or, and make films about the street is that they take it too seriously. Every person I've ever met who was from the street, whether it was a, a crim or a, a homeless person had an incredible sense of humor. Mm. Same with Aboriginal people. This whole thing, and why Nanya could outwit people so easily is they expect an Aboriginal to be a very serious, sacred being, right? Mm. But they have great lateral thinking, most Aboriginal people, and they have a great sense of humor. And they see the stupidity in the... You know, one time Nanya and I were sitting on a... Here's a great way to close. One night Nanya and I were sitting on the steps of the courthouse where we were doing a show, and we're just sitting there talking, and we're drinking a Coke, and all of a sudden there's some people come walking down the road, and Nanya says, watch this. And he just sprawled out on the steps like he was a drunk. And, you know, and, and then when they came, I, he went, how are you going? And they just sort of moved out into the street to go around. <laughs> and then he said, they got to put the character. I said, see, it works every time. Yeah. It's like, you know, he sees the silliness and what other people see is dead serious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's, yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, Joe. Where can people find you and your music if they'd like to? Well, music and poetry both are on my website, joedolce.net that's the best way to do it just come there and that'll lead you uh, Facebook I've got a good Facebook account at the moment I'll try to keep it small so I don't get one of those fan sites which I hate <laughs> I like to have a, a core group of maybe 15-20 people that I communicate with it's my way of socializing mm. so that I can actually turn it off whenever I feel like it and go back to work <laughs> mm. oh, awesome well, I'd thanks Alistair it's love to have you pleasure to these. talk to you and uh, thanks for your insightful questions forcing me to think more than usual this morning <laughs> well thank you for being open and uh, and and receiving those questions okay this um this is part one of a 14 part work on the uh, narcissus myth um let me explain how it was written it's it basically i've been working on it for almost 12 years uh it was originally written in the 90s uh, late 90s for a choir and um um old instruments, Baroque instruments. I wanted to use the Baroque approach. and It was a choral work, and I wrote it on the piano, not on the, which I don't play very well, and not on the guitar, because I remember Johann Sebastian Bach said this fantastic thing I never forgot, which is always compose whenever possible on an instrument that you're not that familiar with, and then transpose it and learn it on the instrument you're most familiar with. Because what that does is break your technique down. It, it, it allows you to create in new patterns that you only are possible on unfamiliar instruments. Um, so once I, I wrote this for the choir and, and the instruments, and then a couple of years later I decided uh, no one wanted to record it, so I thought, well, I better, maybe I can put it on for guitar and voice so I could sing it at least. So it took me a year and a half to transpose it to guitar because every formation in it is totally alien to the way I play guitar. Mm. And uh, when I got done writing out the score for it, I, I developed frozen shoulder in my right shoulder so bad that I actually had to have water injections. It was the, the stress that I was putting on these old muscles that were actually used to playing blues chords. <laughs> it was amazing. But uh, I still couldn't play it. It was way too hard. So I just gave up on it for about five years. And then <coughs> a couple of years ago, last year, I started learning it. And I've learned it pretty much now. So what I'm going to do is play you the very first part. It's short. It's a vignette. And it's about the Narcissus myth, which basically this, this part of the myth has to do with when Narcissus is 
his mother is raped by the river god Sephisus, and uh, and she's taken and taken care of by the the the, um, the dryads and the the nymphs on the riverbank before she gives birth. So this is the very first movement. It's about Liriope. <laughs> Such a lovely nymph, and for his shape and 